This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. I'm very interested in helping you have a conversation with my mom. I'm not sure what kind of questions you're looking for. I'll be with her when we do this. So okay. I'll, I'll put it on my, my cell phone. Hey, uh, my mom does not have a cell phone. She refuses. Okay. So she has a landline yeah. only, right? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the background on how I found this story to begin with. That would, yeah, that's my second question. Because <laughs> nobody knows about this story, which is amazing. So, you know, when Dorothy died, she had been babysitting a little boy who lived pretty close to her named Bill Strain. And when she died, it made a really big impression on him. He was four or five at the time, and he grew up hearing these stories. And he remembered Dorothy as just being very beautiful and kind. Yeah. He grew up and became a law enforcement officer later in life. He became an artist. And when he retired at age 70, he became obsessed with this case. He just really dug into the case. I have a a binder full of information that he found. And he and his son took a couple of trips down to Aransas Pass to try to get more information. And he died. So he died last year. I ran across his website. He had a very long blog about Dorothy. And the reason I wanted to talk to your mom and you and anybody else in the family who wants to talk about it is not to glean any sort of new details or new research. You know, what I like to do is, you know, really get the family's point of view and how this has fit into the tapestry of a family. Every family has a, has a narrative. What? What? My grandmother was, uh, had a nervous breakdown. That's my understanding. That was my first call to J.B. Simons. It was essential that I track him down because his extended family is at the center of the story. The family members are usually willing to help me because they're pretty far removed from the terrible crimes in their family's history. And that's certainly true of the Simons. Everyone I contacted seemed willing to share their memories they had. The trouble is, they didn't have very many. And that surprised me because this horrific incident was big news at the time. Yet somehow, major details related to the case were buried, along with the victim. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a crime historian and the author of the forthcoming book, All That Is Wicked, which is available for pre-order now. I also wrote American Sherlock and Death in the Air. And this is our new season of Tenfold More Wicked. We were just in 1860s Virginia, where a blood feud over a terrible marriage ended in the murders of three people, all in the same family. And now we're in a fishing village on the coast of Texas in the 1930s, where an unforgettable crime sent shockwaves through a small town community and haunted a local family for generations. We're calling the season the Echo of Murder. There's a lot that stands out about this story. I've never covered anything like this case. It's the first time that I've investigated a crime that took place in a small town. 
the kind of town where everyone knows everyone, where it's easy to take sense of safety for granted. It might not be the sort of place you'd imagine is a breeding ground for suspicion and secrets and lies, or maybe it's the perfect place for murder. Perhaps I can shed some light on the mystery of why so many descendants of the Simons seem to know so little about this story. In a small community, you learn to protect your own. So maybe this story was meant to stay a secret. Let me tell you a bit about Dorothy Simons. She was a young woman with a lot of potential, but she was also just another person struggling in a small town during the Great Depression. She liked to break rules every once in a while. Dorothy liked young men and a little bit of danger, and she liked some dangerous men. Dorothy was adored by her mother and her brothers. It sounds like she was the center of the family, the person who kept them sane, because when Dorothy died, everything went to hell. It was as if the heart of the family had been ripped away. The ocean plays a big role in this story, and I love the ocean. During the day, it's sparkling and cool and sort of mysterious. But at night, it's dark and deep, and who knows what's in there as you venture out into the water. I've never been brave enough to swim in the ocean at night. But if you're from Aransas Pass and you're young, it might be something you do just to test your own limits. And it comes with danger. So Dorothy Simons was loved and needed and admired, and soon she'd be dead. I talked with Kelsey Simons, who is the victim's great niece. So what did you know about this story before you and I talked? Was there any conversation about the Dorothy story? I don't think I had any conversations with anybody about it. I first learned about it on Ancestry um, about five years ago when I started doing my family tree, and from there I read about it. I can't remember if I brought it up to my dad. I think I did, and he was... He talked about it briefly, and then we let it go. (laughs) I also talked with Nancy Coppage, the victim's niece, about her father David's explanation about Dorothy's death, or the lack of explanation. Back in those days, you know, you didn't talk about the things because we were raised in a time when nobody talked about any of these things. Like, things were swept under the rug and nothing was spoken of, you know. Those were just those times. It's like everything, even in our family, the whole time growing up, it was like everything was, you know, people don't need to know. They don't need to know that. Um, Very hush-hush. You don't talk to other people about what's going on in your family. I was surprised by the level of curiosity that I created about a crime long forgotten. The relatives I interviewed wanted to know more, even though it was family history that seemingly disappeared. But the more I talk to them, the more I seem to pique their interest. And I'm glad I did. It can be a challenging task to open people's eyes to their own family's history, just like it's challenging to investigate a story where the questions far outnumber the answers. John Bowers is the publisher for the only local newspaper, the Aransas Past Progress. When something bad happens to somebody, the story always gets twisted by gossip. People talk about it on the street, and and women are not worse than men. In fact, men are probably worse. Me and my buddy 
have met at the Baker Cafe and had breakfast for 20 years on Saturday morning. So that's kind of like a big gossip factory, yeah. This is a story where small-town gossip and rampant rumors can quickly lead to ruin. There were whispers about Prohibition-era gangsters and kidnapping plots, roaming serial killers, renegade pirates, jealous lovers, and unbridled obsession. But there's another reason this story is a standout, one that gave me an unexpected sense of purpose. I talked about this with Helen Simons, who was married to the victim's younger brother, Joe. I was telling JB about the stories I've done before always involve families, but I've never had a story that impacted a family so much. There was a trickle-down effect with your family, and no one talked about it. Well, when Joe and I first started going together, of course, my dad knew Joe's dad because the families all knew each other. They lived closer together. And so they knew, and uh, and my dad knew about Dorothy's death. He never, ever mentioned it to me, and he never talked about it to Joe. So while covering this story, I came to care a lot about the Simons, this family that knew relatively little about its own heartbreaking legacy. This is the kind of tragic heartbreak that reverberates through a family for generations, whether they're aware of it or not. I began to wonder, might there be a way to help right past wrongs and maybe even heal deep-seated family wounds? Everyone I spoke with from the family thinks so, and they all felt shut out by the people who knew Dorothy the best. Her death and its impact just about shattered them. Even though this is kind of a gruesome thing. It's nice to know because it's a traumatic event. Dorothy's mother buried her emotions as soon as she buried her only daughter. She never told me anything about the murder. She told me that she she was killed. She finally said the word killed. She beat around the bush for a couple of days before she could even say that. Dorothy's younger brother, Joe, became a family man as an adult, a committed husband and father who was a protector of his children. I think one of the side effects for dad was that family became everything. That no matter how tough things got, he would never, ever abandon the family for any reason whatsoever because what he went through. But Dorothy's other brother, David, internalized her death and he became a really troubled father and husband. He was violent and unremorseful. I was a teenager before he ever even spoke of that. It's like he, it's like it was a deep secret in his past and he did not speak of that. He was scarred for life. Dorothy's great niece says the trauma of her death has somehow changed the lives of all the Simons. There's that whole thing of like how trauma can be written into your DNA. We have a Simons family curse. Do you really believe that? I, yeah, I, I think so. We'll start this journey with the story of the last person to investigate this case before me. He's actually a really important character because he knew Dorothy Simons. She babysat him the year that she died. And he cared about the story probably more than anyone else. And he knew the most about it. This is Michael Strain, Bill's son. My dad saw this as being really important. He had been fascinated by this case his whole life. And I don't think he understood why, and I don't think I understand why. 
we'll be hearing a lot from Michael Strain. Full disclosure here, I've entered into a highly unusual collaboration this season with Michael's father, Bill, a man who continues to be the primary source of information about this case, even though he's been dead for several years. As a self-appointed expert, Bill has informed my research more than anyone else. And I should probably mention that he wasn't even related to the Simons family. In fact, he barely knew them at all. I guess I'll start reading in here because I think it'll be interesting. I kind of broke these up into paragraphs. So this is, to me, the, some of the most powerful stuff just because it's, it's in your dad's words. So you can just read. Maybe this is a love story. It might be a story of obsession, or perhaps it's even a story of possession. I'm not sure I'll ever know for sure because Dorothy's been stalking me for almost 71 years now. Dorothy is an enigma. Dorothy's only 18 years old, and I'm 74. To enhance the paradox, let me tell you that Dorothy was my babysitter. You've probably heard of a ghostwriter. It's a secret author behind a book that's credited to someone else. Well, I guess you could say that Bill Strain has been my ghost investigator. Honestly, I can't remember how I even found him. Probably just lots of Googling. Back in 2018, Bill started a website detailing almost every angle of this particular crime. His blog immediately intrigued me because, well, I got the feeling that Bill wasn't your typical armchair detective. I've been finding it hard to paint a clear picture of Bill. He's a tough guy to pin down. He had an eclectic personal history. He worked for the Boy Scouts. He attended art school. He went from self-styled ladies' man to devoted husband and father. He was also a World War II veteran. He lied about his age to join the Merchant Marines at just 17, and he eventually became a policeman. There's no doubt Bill was multi-talented. His widow, Sherry, remembers him fondly. Bill was a watercolor artist and made art shows all around South Texas especially. He taught art classes and often went out on the weekends to sketch some of his favorite places. His favorite subjects were old rundown barns and windmills and cars. It was like the kind of things that he grew up with, you know, when he was a child. These were the, this is what the cars looked like, and this is what the windmills looked like. Bill loved Aransas Pass, and he enjoyed combining his art with his past. He'd find them on the side of the road and stop and sketch and take pictures, and that was just his favorite subject matter, along with the boats and the activities along the channels especially in that area of Corpus Christi and Aransas Pass. So he had a varied interest and uh, talked about them frequently. I just found him quite fascinating. I just love to hear him talk. (laughs) As he neared retirement, Bill realized he'd need an interesting way to occupy his time. So he started researching and writing about this story to the point of obsession, honestly. The remnants of all his hard work are now left in his blog and in the hands of his son, Michael. I found it to be a really compelling story. Apparently, it was all the scuttlebutt when he was a kid. He tells a story about reading one of the detective magazines and and reading the story of that and remembering everything about it. How long did he do this? How long was he researching, do you think? Decades? 
you know, I, I'm not sure. He may have, I mean, it sounds like he was a little bit researching all his life. We're moving into an unconventional direction this season. I like to think of us as tag team detectives, each of us seeking the truth. Bill started the investigation, and I'll pick up where he left off. I'm looking for scraps of evidence that might have fallen through the cracks, evidence that Bill, despite his perseverance, might have missed. This story is less about discovering what happened to Dorothy Simons and more about discovering what happened to her family. In many ways, even though we're decades apart, Bill and I have mirrored each other's movements, and we definitely have one thing in common, a personal connection to the location of the crime, Aransas Pass. I love this part of coastal Texas. It's just four hours from my home in Austin, and my family and I vacation here every year. We actually rent a condo in Port Aransas, which is a popular beach town nearby. We take the 15-minute trip by ferry from Aransas Pass to the Barrier Island. Bill was an Aransas Pass native. When you read his story of growing up, it's obvious that he had a real affinity for his hometown. Here's a great line from his blog. If Mark Twain had been a shrimp boat captain instead of a riverboat captain, Aransas Pass would be forever deeply engraved into American literature. I also love Bill's description of people living on the beach back when he was just a child. He really captured the community spirit of Aransas Pass and the kindness that neighbors shared with one another. He wrote, In 1931, most of the people in the country were unemployed. There was very little cash flow. Every day in Aransas Pass, hobos would knock on the back door asking for a meal. My mother always had a bowl of beans and a glass of tea for them to enjoy while sitting on the back porch. Some of the hobos would pull weeds in the yard for a while to pay something for their meal. We are in the heart of the Great Depression here, an extremely difficult period in American history. After the big stock market crash in 1929, the entire country was suffering. The nation was plagued by high unemployment, low wages, high crime rates, and political turmoil. In the midst of the Great Depression, parts of Texas were hit particularly hard. The state's economy was largely driven by the agricultural industry. Livestock dominated the western part of the state, while cotton was big business up north. Inland areas struggled with a shaky oil market, bank foreclosures mounted, and poverty and breadlines increased. I spoke to University of Texas history professor Walter Banger. He's an expert on Texas during the Great Depression. We think of Texas as a place of oil and cattle. Right, that's sort of the mythology. But the reality of Texas in the 20s and 30s was that it was one of the major cotton producers in the entire world. And so as the price of cotton went, so went the Texas economy. And the price of cotton collapsed in the 1920s and early 1930s. The collapse of the cotton prices obviously hurt farmers and tenant farmers and farm laborers but it also hurt bankers, grocery store owners, insurance agents, dealers who bought and sold cotton and so on. But things weren't quite the same in coastal areas. 
Cliff Strain is a local historian in Port Aransas. He's of no relation to Michael and Bill Strain. It didn't hit the fishing industry quite as hard, you know, because people still had to eat. There's, I think the fishing boats still went out. I think there was a, a fairly big flow of people trying to go to the coast, people kind of moving around the country trying to find a place where they could make, get work and get food. It looked as though fishing villages fared a bit better than landlocked parts of the state, to a degree. So it makes sense that more people began to migrate toward coasts in the early 1930s. But there was no escaping the blight of the devastated U.S. economy. So it seems fair to guess that most of the new arrivals were living paycheck to paycheck. They brought with them a kind of desperation that could easily turn dangerous. So there were actually shanty towns in Aransas Pass, just like everywhere else in the country? Yes, they, they called them Hoovervilles, made out of cardboard oftentimes or, or scrap lumber. Hoovervilles were named after President Herbert Hoover, who held office from 1929 through 1933. So poverty and the search for better work brought a lot of people to the Texas coast, and among those was the Simon family. They were outsiders, too. In 1923, Agnes Simons left her home state of Indiana with her young daughter and her second husband, Howard. Apparently, the move was Howard's idea. Having worked in the Midwest, he felt there was better money to be made in the oil fields down south. Howard's grandson, J.B. Simons, tells me more about the family's moves. So he decided to go to Yale, Oklahoma, too. I don't know why. Uh, at all as to why he chose that particular town. But it was, I know that there was, they were hiring people for the oil fields there. My grandmother, Agnes, was 10 years older than my grandpa Simon's, but they met and uh, she had money and he wanted to do some wildcatting. Uh, basically, they ended up sinking 17 dry wells uh, from Oklahoma into Texas. And uh, she said, uh, we... Uh, we didn't have any luck with the oil, but they ended up in uh, Aransas Pass area. The adjustment to life in Texas sounds like a difficult one. Helen Simons was Dorothy's much younger sister-in-law. They never actually met because she only married Dorothy's younger brother, Joe, long after Dorothy died. Well, they were from the North, and anybody from the North was not quite as good as those from the South. I don't know whether you've ever faced that or not, but Agnes said she did and said she just realized that's the way it was. And if they wanted to be friends, okay. If they didn't, okay. They said she had some good friends after that. My grandmother said to me one time, we were interlopers. We had only been in Randall's Pass a few years. We were second-class citizens. I remember her clearly saying that. The Simons eventually found their social circle. Agnes began working as a seamstress, and she became active in her local church. Howard worked for the Humble Oil and Refinery Company. Aransas Pass was now home to the family of five. They had two little boys named Joe and David. From stories handed down to Joe's son, JB, it sounds like they were typically pretty rambunctious kids. Yeah, they played hide-and-seek a lot, and, of course, tag. Other than that, a four-, five-, six-year-old is not going to get a lot of activity and no baseball. Now, later on, Uncle Dave and Dad 
raised hell a lot. They set fire to the prairie. <laughs> the entire town came out to put the fire out. It was a big fire. And then there was Dorothy. Eighteen-year-old Dorothy Simons was the oldest of the children. She was Agnes's daughter from a previous marriage. By all accounts, Dorothy was a delightful young woman. She was smart and friendly and athletic. She had a beautiful singing voice, and she was in the church choir. Everyone I talked to echoed positive descriptions of the attractive young girl, but no one's adoration came close to that of her mother's. That certainly did get passed down through the family. Joe's wife, Helen Simons, was Agnes's daughter-in-law. So what did she ever say to you, or I guess start with Agnes. What did, what did Agnes say about Dorothy? She was perfect. She was really, really pretty. I've seen pictures of her. And she thought she was perfect as far as her personality was because she was good in school. And nobody could believe that this had happened to her. Did she say she was a good singer? Because oh, uh, in, in all sing. of the papers, it says she was choir singer. <laughs> well, she sang in the choir like everybody else that went to church and any kid did. Remember when you used to oh, sing yeah. in the choir? Yep. Dorothy's younger siblings absolutely adored their big sister. Did he talk about what she was like? I know that Agnes said that she was perfect, but did Joe say anything about what she was like with him? Oh, yes. She treated him really, really nice. And he thought she was about like Agnes, about perfect. Dorothy was as responsible as she was kind. To her youngest brother, Joe, Dorothy was a lifesaver, literally. He fell in a tub of more or less boiling water when he was probably... Two or three. He was just running around good in the house. And Agnes was getting ready to wash, and she'd put this boiling water in this tub. For some reason, I don't know what the deal was. But she says, I saw him running towards the water and said, I reached out and grabbed him by the arm and says, it's probably the only thing that saved him because as I did, I turned him around and he fell backwards into this tub of water. And the ambulance came and got him, and he was on the way to the hospital in the ambulance, and a taxi cab hit the ambulance. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) This is a bad day. And Agnes told me herself, she said the last thing I heard heard out of Joe was he said, Mom, (laughs) and said he rolled up one side of the ambulance and backed down and then rolled up the other side because it evidently went a complete circle when it rolled over. He had um, second and third degree burns from the back of his knees all the way up about a third of the way up his back. Uh, He was scarred for life. I I saw those. He wouldn't go swimming very much in public because he was uh, ashamed of those scars. Wow. 
He said, if it hadn't been for Dorothy, I probably never would have walked. And I said, what do you mean by Dorothy? Whoever's your mom? Well, I don't know. She just kind of took over, and she had to whip up egg whites and put them on him at night as uh, healing. That must have been really tough on Dorothy and really impactful on Joe because she saved him. And uh, he said, I can still see there was a single light bulb in my bedroom, or in the room where I was anyway, he said. And she'd come in and turn that light on and then whip up the eggs and put them on her burn marks. They probably would have been a lot worse if it hadn't been for that, that's what he said. And she exercised his legs each time that she did that because they were drawing up so from the scarring. How old was he when this happened? I would say something between two and three because he was just running good through the house. So she would have been like 15 or something like that. That's a lot of responsibility for a young lady. Yes, because she was 15, I think. No, she was 16. And she got excused. That was one thing he said. She got excused from going to the Catholic Church, taking some of those uh, classes they had to take because she always went home ever so many hours to put these egg whites on him. Dad absolutely adored her. She doted on him and, and also my Uncle Dave, took in different places, and just she was a good older sister, 12 years older. Dorothy wasn't just the family's beloved eldest child. She was highly regarded throughout the community, and she frequently babysat for other children in the neighborhood. One of the children she looked after was a quiet young boy with a difficult home life. That was Bill Strain. I asked Bill's widow, Sherry, how much she knew about his earlier life. What was your understanding? What did he say about his childhood? His mother was, I think, very strict. Um, His father was certainly less strict and I think did some recreational (laughs) drinking and visiting along the way, but we didn't talk about that very much. But I think he, as a young child, saw kind of both sides, upbringing from two completely different directions. With that kind of upbringing, it's no wonder a kid might look to his caretaker for comfort. Bill's son, Michael, shared with me more of his father's notes about his time with Dorothy. You see this part? Dorothy did mostly housework. Dorothy did mostly housework and babysitting. It's amazing that I still have memories of Dorothy because I wasn't quite four years old when she was killed. I remember liking her because she was pretty and small, which made her not as threatening as some of the larger women who worked for my mother. I also liked her because she laughed a lot. I think my mother felt this might be her only fault. So your grandmother loved Dorothy, it sounds like. Yeah, my grandma, you know, liked a lot of people, but she could be a little judgmental. Told you she was a little like Granny on the the Beverly Hillbilly. She was also a little bit like the church lady on Saturday Night Live. Not to that extreme, but she had a deal. She'd go, well, you know, you know, it, she, she wouldn't say judgmental things about people, but that well had a judgmental tone to it. From what Bill Strain told his son Michael, it seems like it was more than that. She was responsible and kind. But there was more to her allure. So it sounds like your dad really liked Dorothy at the very beginning because she just was someone who was engaging and lively and... Go ahead, go ahead. 
My dad laughed a lot, but not much around the house. My mother was a very serious person who felt that too much laughter must be the work of the devil. I'm sure Dorothy was clever enough not to laugh too much when my mother was around. Dorothy was a great tease, which wasn't much fun. She knew how to draw faces, but she would always draw them without chins like the Andy Gumps in the funny papers. She would be drawing for me, and I would watch the pencil go over the oval that made the top of the head, then down to about the eye level and move out to make the nose, and then back in to make the mouth, and then, no, no, Dorothy, it has to have a chin, it has to have a chin. And she would laugh and go back up and put a chin on the face. I can remember crying because she didn't draw the chin on. So maybe Dorothy had a bit of a mischievous spirit. Most teenage girls do. And maybe this rebellious streak was something she felt she had to hide. It makes sense. Her mother's endless fawning might have put a tremendous amount of pressure on her daughter to give a pious impression. If that were the case, I wonder how hard that might have been on Dorothy, especially when her surroundings were likely full of temptation. I mentioned earlier that, economically, some coastal areas fared a bit better during the Depression, but they weren't spared the hardships of one of the nation's most restrictive laws, a ban on the production of alcohol. Prohibition began in 1920, a product of a religious temperance movement at the time. Reformers coined the term demon rum. They cited an array of reasons that liquor posed a threat to American society. It caused insanity, led to poverty, increased immoral behavior. Not surprisingly, it wasn't an easy law to enforce, and criminal activity surged as a pushback. Illegal trafficking and bootlegging and a rise in organized crime became the norm. I doubt that came as a shock to anyone. Historian Cliff Strain tells me how prohibition impacted a small town like Aransas Pass. Certainly, prohibition and the organized crime, quote-unquote, is kind of what dominated that time period in Aransas Pass. Is that right? I think it was definitely an opportunity for for lawlessness to kind of run rampant, but I don't know how organized it was. I think it was organized as far as having the lookouts and being able to clean up, but it was really small operations that were autonomous of each other and, and not connected with the mob or syndicate from further up. I wanted a better picture of just how out of control things might have been. So I interviewed John Bowers, who was the longtime publisher of the local newspaper, The Aransas Pass Progress. If you were a fishing village, what does that mean besides that the majority of the people who work and live here are involved in the fishing industry? Does well, this mean a lot of drinking? Does this <laughs> mean church? The shrimpers drank a lot. They, they would shrimp. They would get off. The bars around here opened at 7 in the morning and they closed at two in the morning. So when the shrimpers got off, they got paid cash money. I'm talking about the deckhands, not the guys that own the boats. They would take that money and they would come in to town, buy whatever they needed, socks, underwear, the whole, everything they needed, and then the rest of the money they would take and drink it up. As I was researching this story, I ran across a documentary about the effect Depression-era struggles had on teenagers. America's drastic economic downturn forced some to work both inside and outside the home, taking side jobs like house cleaning and shoe shining. Teenagers also left their hometowns because of poverty. Hopping freight trains was really dangerous, but it became a common way to travel for a lot of teens. An estimated 250,000 were living on the road, searching for better opportunities. 
But Dorothy Simons seemed like she led a very different life with a stable home, a loving family, and a well-respected place within her tight-knit community. Dorothy was hardly the kind of girl you'd expect to get into trouble or go looking for it. J.B. Simons says that his father, Joe, idolized his older sister. And then one day, just like that, Dorothy was gone. Um, He was sitting, he was just almost six years old. He was sitting on the porch. He tells me he was playing with the dog, and Dorothy came by, and she she said, where are you going? He says, well, I'm going to go swimming with some friends. That's what she told him. He said, that's the last time I saw her. on this season of Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I mean, is this something, this kind of case, is this something people would have gossiped about or not wanted to talk about? Well, it stayed stayed in the paper for a couple of years. So what does that mean? That means it was big news. The way he told the story, I thought it was, she was swimming in a pond with someone, but obviously that wasn't the case. You know, there's an old country thing about Texas that, you know, in a murder case, you want to prove the person needed killing. That's the kind of thing where it isn't a movie and it isn't a story. This is really happening to this girl. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold War Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Laura Sobel, and Alexis Amorosi. Co-writers Laura Sobel and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can hear every episode one week early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.